So let's meet our panelists. David Boyer, right here to my right, who produces The Intersection, which is a podcast about? Uh, looking at change uh, one street corner at a time. So basically, I spend about a year at a corner and try and figure out what's going on there. What are the different factors that are coming to play? And actually, the first season, the Unite Here uh, Union in San Francisco was on the corner. So I got to spend like, you know, six months learning what a union was. And then across the street, there was um, uh, supportive housing. And then across the street from that was a corner store that was like a major sort of drug hangout uh, and sales place. Um, so every corner has a different story. And depending on which corner you pick, uh, that's the story that you're telling. Cool. Well, I think the best way to get to know a show is to hear it a little bit, so. Behind those houses is Google, the building out that gate is Google, the building out that gate is Google, like everywhere around. Every day we turn around and something else is gone. Can't handle it. I think there's not going to be anything left out there pretty soon except Google. It's almost there now. This season on The Intersection, we're heading to Google's global headquarters in the heart of Silicon Valley. Hey Siri. Yes. How do I get from here to Mountain View? Oh, yeah, yeah, the people coming from the other direction, that is a nightmare. This is pretty normal, actually. I come from Sacramento every day. In the morning time, it takes uh, two hours. In the afternoon, it takes three and a half to four. I am a software engineer at Google, and I live in an RV. What we have to deal with in Mountain View are really the perils of prosperity. There's a, there's a social responsibility aspect what happens to the company town if the company leaves? Is Google forever? Nothing lasts forever. I'm David Boyer, and I'll meet you in Googleville at the corner of North Shoreline Boulevard and Space Parkway, this season on The Intersection. So now we have a feel for the show. Talk to us a bit about the numbers. Um, how often does it come out? How long are your episodes? What does your team look like? Mm -hmm. Budget. Let's get the kind of bones of the show. So, um, I mean, the history of it is that I started doing it thinking I was going to do, uh, you know, like one intersection a month kind of thing. And I ended up in the Tenderloin in San Francisco and realized that that was nothing. That was like scraping the surface. And especially in a neighborhood like that, which I don't know if people know, it's sort of in the middle of San Francisco, a ton of homeless people, a ton of uh, people struggling with addiction and all sorts of things. And... It felt like in the past, everyone had kind of come through there and done a one-off story that, you know, didn't really connect the dots. And actually, I was here and met with Alex Bloomberg, who was my uh, radio doctor. And I said, you know, what do you think of, like, staying there? And he's like, you know, he sort of gave me permission. And I guess when you're starting, you're looking for permission. He gave me permission. He said, just stay. I mean, go deeper. And I ended up staying. Instead of a month, I stayed a year. Uh, and instead of doing one piece, I did eight pieces on that corner. Um, so that's became the model. So now the model is like I work for about a year in the field and produce about eight to ten episodes uh, that come out, you know, I kind of launch and then they come out like basically every other week or uh, yeah, pretty much every other week. And uh, so that's the number of episodes. I think there's 20 episodes total uh, in terms of numbers. Well, the budget, uh, the budget, I would say it's probably about 15,000 a season, but it takes me, you know, like the first two seasons, it took about three years. Yeah. Um, 
that's paid for largely with grants. Uh, that's sort of how that's been funded. Uh, and I work with KLW. Uh, so I'm not without a network, but it's an interesting relationship because the relationship is essentially they provide some editorial feedback and some studio space, and I provide, you know, like 10 hours of content. Um, no money changes hands, yeah. um, but you have a, a bit of a base which feels super. And they broadcast. They broadcast, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and numbers. <laughs> well, who's like how many people work on the show? So it's it's largely me, uh, an editor from KLW, a sound engineer. Um, I basically do all the cutting, and he kind of spends a a day kind of making sure, adding in a lot of um, air into the piece because I like kind of make it real dense. Um, then you know when I launched, I had someone help kind of essentially tell me, like, don't forget to promote, don't forget to put something up on social media. And then the last episode of uh, this season, we went through nine years of city council audio, uh, focusing on one issue, uh, whether or not to build housing in this neighborhood that they had been struggling with for a decade. So I had someone help uh, <laughs> kind of listen to a lot of that and, and pull, pull some stuff. Um, are you comfortable sharing your yeah. Um So this last season, there were a total of, I think, 50,000 downloads. And the episodes range from like 3,500 an episode to a little under 7,000 an episode. And that's in the first week, four weeks? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the bulk of that is in, you know, is the first couple of days for sure. Cool. Um, I just want to say that it's, there's a funny taboo around download numbers, and people feel a little shy about that. And I understand why, and we're not trying to shame or praise anybody. It's just these are just facts, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. If you make a podcast, you have nothing to be ashamed of. So uh, publish something and hit, hit publish. It's great. So, um, Okay, and, and how do listeners find you? That's my last, one of my last questions. So I think it's a mix of a little bit of PR, yeah. uh, a little bit of... Um, you know, I buy every so often like a Facebook ad like that's targeting like Google, like Mountain View, Google tech employees. Yeah. Um, I stand on the street corner outside Google handing out cards. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, you're about to get on a bus for an hour and a half. Why don't you listen to this <laughs> podcast <laughs> about your commute? That'll yeah. be fun. Yeah. 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 Clever, clever. Using the noggin. Um, I mean, this is the question I ask every podcaster. Why are you making this? I mean, I love the forum. I came out of oral histories, and once I discovered that you could actually do something very similar with sound, it just blew me away. And I love big projects, big things that I can kind of spend time with. And so it just kind of lined up. I mean, I, got, I feel like I got lucky in a way to actually find it. And so I love, I love the whole process of making. I love the interviewing. I love the cutting. I love all of it. So, I mean, that's why I make it. You know, I think we're going to get to one of the, at some point. The, one of the benefits of doing it this way is like, I have no deadline really. I mean, I have some benchmarks, but largely, I can spend as much time as I want on it. I can uh, make it four minutes, twenty-seven minutes, forty-two minutes. I mean, there's so much control, uh, and I love that. I mean, I love the whole package. Cool. All right. Thanks. Um, moving on to Nadia and Palestinians podcast. So. It, Palestinians Podcast is a podcast about... Uh, it's really... Palestinians Podcast is a podcast that the tagline is everyday stories about Palestinians from all over the world, although primarily we've been telling stories about Palestinians living in the United States and the diaspora. Um, and I just want to say thank you for this opportunity to share mm -hmm. this. Uh, 
the Palestinian narrative is not something that's heard in the mainstream, and that's one of the main reasons why I started this. Um, and so um, it's a really exciting opportunity to tell these stories and to have them be heard, um, not only amongst the Palestinian community, but outside the Palestinian community as well. Um, so you're going to hear a little bit of audio uh, to give you a little context of what's happening. Um, we do live storytelling events in addition to the podcast. That's primarily one of the ways we get some of the audio for the podcast. Um, and this was from our first event. Um, this is Annalise Razit. She's a storyteller from Chicago. She came out to Boston to tell this story. And this is her experience um, at a Arab food tour in Dearborn, Michigan, um, where she got to also go to the Arab American National Museum. So you'll hear a little bit of her reflection on the identity politics um, of participating in this as a Palestinian American. I felt like a little bit of shame to be in this group because I thought, I'm already supposed to know this stuff. And I kept waiting for somebody to look at me and go, wait a minute, aren't you an Arab? What are you doing on this tour? You know, but of course, no one, no one said that. And then I went down the other familiar rabbit hole I have, which was, well, what do people see when they look at me? Like, can't, can't they tell I'm Middle Eastern? Or maybe they know I'm Middle Eastern, and they also know that I am a fake. But you know what? Nobody's thinking about me as much as I'm thinking about me. So <laughs> we go on the tour. And the thing about that tour is it was really, I was surprised, I wasn't expecting this, but it was really exhilarating for me. And especially when we went later that day to the Arab American Museum. I mean, that museum, it is beautiful. I could have stayed there all day and gone back the next day. I just felt like it was the invisible made visible. And I was like, oh, I found them. Here they are. And then I thought, oh, I said they. What I really want to say is we. I want to say, here we are. I want to say, here I am. And that's where I'm headed. Here we are. Here I am. Thank you. So I get emotional just hearing it again. Um, but our podcast really is about people trying to navigate their identity space here in the United States um, and having to navigate that at every conversation they have with other people. When you're asked, where are you from? And you say something like San Francisco, and then someone's like, no, 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 where are you from from, right? And it's that awkward conversation that you have to have and um, Annalise really summarizes that perfectly. The, the, the point of the podcast, hopefully, is to make an invisible population a little bit more visible. Yeah. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about how it gets made? How often <coughs> do you publish? How many episodes are behind you? What does your team look like? Sure. So um, I started the podcast in January of 2016. Um, we release an episode a month, um, and each episode is centered around a different person's story. Um, I'm pretty much the team. Um, I have, uh, I've enlisted a lot of like extended family, like the um, logo was made by my first cousin. Um, I have a second cousin who edits the audio for me. Um, I don't do any of the edit 
the audio editing. Um, and I, so, and the, the other uh, asterisk here is that this is not my full-time job. So I'm, I actually have a very full full-time job. I'm an assistant professor at Boston College on the tenure track. So um, this is something that I do on the side. Um, this is something that I do because I love it, that I'm passionate about it. Um, we've successfully released about an episode every month. I, there's been only a few months where we haven't. Um, and the plan is to uh, keep going at that pace. Um, were there other numbers? I was um, what's your budget? Uh, so I self-fund the pot project, um, and I typically spend um, anywhere between twenty-five hundred and three thousand a year. That doesn't include my travel um, when I travel to these live storytelling events. So the so the other component of this is that I run the live storytelling events. I train people to tell their stories. I actually host the live storytelling events, um, and I often partner with film festivals or local organizations who are willing to often put up the money for the venue um, um, and do most of the administration and the ticketing for that. Um, I do get a little bit of a kickback from those events, from the ticketing sales, but it's definitely not enough to uh, fund the project entirely. Um, in terms of our listenership and downloads, I am a little embarrassed to share this, but I will. Um, we typically get monthly between 1,500 and 2,000 downloads. Um, after a month of release, an episode will be at about 1,200 to 1,500 uh, downloads. Um, and I don't do any advertising on the podcast. I haven't monetized the podcast in any way. Um, our listenership is mostly in the United States, although we have a significant amount of listenership um, in the Middle East as well. Um, that reminds me, maybe after this session you'll have 1,300 to 1,600 a month because I hope you'll all go and subscribe to these shows uh, immediately. Um, and how do you think, so you have an, an audience that you're definitely speaking directly to. How do they find you? How do you grow that audience? And what are your main ways of spreading the word about the show? Yeah, the live storytelling shows really help with that. So um, I've done shows, uh, I've done three shows in Boston, one in DC, one in Detroit. We're gonna do one in Chicago, hopefully, and one in San Francisco. That really helps the geography spread um, information about the podcast. Um, I try to connect with other um, Palestinian organizations across the United States. Um, I try to connect with other podcasters who are working on Middle Eastern issues in general. Um, I really try my best to contact people and really do favors to ask them to share our content. A lot of it has been word of mouth, honestly. Um, someone will listen and tell their cousin that there's this, you know, there's this podcast, and that's how I've heard people have spread the word. But I don't think that that grows it as fast as um, other avenues might. I just haven't explored other avenues. Not yet. Okay, thanks. We'll, we'll come back to you. And uh, our final panelist is Steve Ray, and his show is Deep North, a show about? It's a show about the streets, art, and food of Minneapolis-St. Paul, dispelling myths of Minnesota nice for the other side <laughs> of the cities. The clip you're about to hear is from the Upper Harbor Terminal in North Minneapolis. It's the largest single owner stretch of land along the Mississippi River, 48 acres. It's in a traditionally poor neighborhood and it's of course up on the chopping block for redevelopment. Uh, and I'm talking with someone very intimately involved with that issue. The development committee has not decided how much of the site will be a park if it will include an amphitheater, 
or what type of housing and businesses will complement the destination. One of the most revealing, telling uh, pieces of history over here, embrazened on the side of this round circular dome. History doesn't repeat itself, we just repeat history. Study the past and keep the future a mystery. Myself personally, I'm interested in investing my time to try to change that historical course. Biking south, away from the upper harbor, the roads are rugged and traffic is industrial. To my right is the freeway, and my left, steel siding. But after only a mile, the streets open up, and I'm riding along the river. Across the Mississippi is Boom Island, where a century ago, floating timber was once sorted. Soon after, I pass the ruins of mills that once ground wheat into flour. Today, the river remains a hub, and is once again being reshaped as a representation of the times. What will our ruins say about the structures we choose? When I was Keep playing it. <laughs> oh, you know when you've heard tape a thousand times. And you can't stop your head from tapping <coughs> or you're swinging along. Um, okay, so thanks. So let's hear uh, about a little bit how it gets made, how often, what does your team look like? Sure. Just yeah. as your so the first iteration of Deep North was produced shows like this. It was a season-long, eight episodes coming out weekly. Um, since then, the format has changed a bit, uh, and we'll get into that maybe later, uh, involving less resources in production. Um, so the duration of the show, they're usually about 16 minutes long, uh, highly produced shows. Um, what other numbers do we have? Team, I, I, I'm doing everything. I, uh, I've done that before, and I want to intentionally this time set up a structure where at least I had a facade of a team around me. Mm. So I created a team of advisors, mm. which was 10 people, uh, like the smartest people I know, and I would send out episodes to them, and they basically served three purposes. One was creative direction, uh, give me ideas about stories I need to be telling. Two was distribution, helping share the stories with their network. And then three was editing, telling me how I can become a better storyteller. Cool, and what's your budget for the show? Um, I, I heard someone say the other day that they pay themselves for time. Uh, I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, what does it cost to make a podcast by yourself? A lot of time and like a thousand bucks. Uh, so when I think about ideas and if and how they might succeed, I'm always wondering what a producer's ambition is. Like, what is the point of doing the show? And are you trying to make a living? Are you trying to spread a message? Are you trying to explore your own thoughts about where you live or the world around you? So could we just go through? I'd love to know, like, in a sentence or two, like, generally, what's your ambition for the show? Where is it going? Um, so, I mean, I, I see it as potentially uh, something replicatable that, you know, any station in the country could do an intersection and have their local team do it. So that's something that I'm beginning to think about. Uh, you know, the longer you do it, the, 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 you know, year three, year four, it's, it's hard to sign on for another year very quickly. So um, another goal, I think, is just to sort of, yeah, grow the team so it's not just me and whether that's 
um, you know, stations or freelancers or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, initially, I started the podcast just to build a community for myself uh, by meeting people, listening to their stories. I was finding my community and I was sort of setting up a network. And I've realized now that the show is doing that for a lot of other people. Um, and I get emails from listeners who tell me that it's their only connection to their heritage, to their homeland, and that really pushes me to continue. I don't know how sustainable it is for it to continue, um, given the rigor of my position and my actual job. Ideally, I would like a group of young Palestinian American people mm. to come through, take it over and run with it. And I would be so happy if that happened. I just, I haven't found them yet. So season one was focused on the cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. For season two, I wanted to go beyond the cities, especially with the election season approaching. I didn't think that there was a better time to make connections between urban and rural Minnesota, how the two communities make each other what they are uh, and kind of foster a unique community between them. In Minnesota especially, there's a rural renaissance happening and the, the city is invited. But I haven't found a way to uh, fund this project, make it happen. Uh, so right now that's on hold. I'm still really excited about it uh, and continuing to work on the the podcast in its new revised form. You all have shows that speak to certain audiences. To, uh, I was thinking about this question when Leela and Hannah were saying, uh, pitching their session about audience. But it's true that they're gonna, you know, you're, they're localized in a way or they're a particular, so how do you think about, when you think about size and if size is one indication of success of a show, maybe it's not for you because you really wanna go deep with the people who are going to relate to your show specifically. How do you balance those thoughts about eventually feeling like you're on a trajectory of growth, whether it's internal um, creative joy growth or actual listenership growth? I mean, I think it's incremental and being okay with that mm -hmm. is kind of how I, you know, as long as I'm putting out something that I think is good uh, and people who listen to it think it's good, uh, I'm cool with that. And, you know, kind of going community by community, you know, really, helping tell the story of a community. I mean, it's, that's the goal, you know, really. Um, it's just a matter of how long you can do that, yeah. you know. I really had high hopes when I started this thing. I was like, I'm gonna get on the top, you know, 100 list for iTunes and it's gonna go great. Uh, I got a really nice rude awakening um, <laughs> in terms of my notes. Uh, I don't, I really don't know. I, I would love to hear tips about how people think I can grow my audience. I think that that's something that I think about often. I just don't necessarily have the bandwidth to explore all options all the time. So if you guys have brilliant ideas, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, Deep, Deep North has been a fantastic creative outlet while at the same time providing a platform to build community uh, in, in the city. And, and one thing I'd like to hear from you guys about at some point is, as David and I deal with working with a geographically limited audience, how do you justify investing a lot of time into something like that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, the more I talked to these guys and heard a little bit more about their process, I thought that also peeled back some layers of interesting um, solutions you've found to how you make your show, whether it's budget or team or... So I thought we would talk a little bit about process for each of them, and in that, maybe talk about a challenge that you identified early on, and whether it's the pro process you're talking about or another one. Let us know how you actually 
tackled that and whether, whether you've had success. So we'll start with David. So what is my process? <laughs> I mean, I, I think for me, uh, it's really the, the challenge is always like, you know, I'll have hundreds of hours of tape. I mean, so much tape. And if you're dealing with like city council that has an archive of, you know, unlimited, how you kind of deal with all of that yeah. in a timely way. I mean, thankfully, technology is kind of uh, getting better in terms of transcribe, like digital, like that has saved me. Digital transcription and free trials have saved me. Um, <laughs> you know, that I can run, I can run these interviews through and then, you know, have a sense because it's so much material. Um, there's, Ira Glass had a, there's a one pager he, I don't know where this is, but it's, it's like how he handles all of this material, and he basically gets it onto one sheet. Um, and so this is sort of a version of that. Uh, my friend Lisa Morehouse, I share an office with, uh, she does California Foodways, and it, it, she has a whole post-it thing. And so that's, I, I kind of arrange everything, and that's like a piece of the wall. It's actually much bigger. Um, whether it's an episode or a season, it's kind of like, how do you visually figure out what to do with all of this stuff? And, yeah. and yeah. that was it, sort of. Being able to see it in front of seeing you, it all, condensed, but getting rid refined, of things, yeah. seeing you know, yeah. being able to move things around, yeah. um, and that yeah. actually helped you speed up your production, get to the point sooner. I think get to the point sooner, yeah. and and tell the story that I tell the tell the best story, yeah. you know. Um, again, without deadlines, like a lot of uh, this can go on forever. So uh, anything that can kind of uh, streamline it, um, you know, is super helpful. Uh, this is a, a glimpse into Nadia's uh, process. Yeah, I'm a professor, so I did make a PowerPoint slide. I had to. Um, so uh, typically, like I said, we get a lot of our audio from live storytelling shows, but I do go out and interview people also in person. I often get fed really lovely food when I do that. Um, that's just part of the culture, so I, I, I will eat it. Um, and uh, from there, I transcribe a lot of the audio using Descript, um, and I found that to be very helpful. I had a group of volunteers, summer interns this summer, who worked through all the transcripts and made sure that everything was accurate. Um, and then that's where things slow down, because then it gets to my desk, and I actually have to do something with the transcript and the audio, and that's where things really are slow. I'm sitting on, as you said, hundreds of hours of interviews and stories that just haven't gone out because I haven't had time to produce episodes. Um, I then um, do the voiceover recordings in my closet, um, and I acquire music, and that's often a timely process, talking to artists, seeing if they're willing to um, lend me music for the show, um, working out what kind of promotional material they want after the episode comes out. Um, and then I beg, beg, beg my cousins to edit the audio for me. Um, one of them's actually a professional videographer um, and sound editor for sports in the Bay Area. Um, and he volunteers his time every month to edit my episodes, which is just so kind. Um, and I have a cousin actually in Palestine who also does the same for me when I need her to. Um, and then while they're doing that, I'm creating social media photos and videos. I use this really cool thing called Headliner. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it produces these really nice 30-second or 15-second snippets mm -hmm. um, that I really love. 
um, I set up release, I set up the website, and then you know you really have to go after it and try to put out as much social media out there as possible. I'm not good. I'm not as consistent as I could be about it, um, but that's really um, where I've seen a lot of the gains in listeners is just trying to reach out on social media. Um, so. Ideally, there wouldn't be that sort of slowdown um, when it gets to me, um, and I wouldn't. I would be able to ideally also pay someone to edit my audio, but right now I just beg, and I do send them like baklava every Christmas, so that's my. <laughs> okay, thanks. And I want. We're definitely going to put a pin in social media and come back to that after we get through Steve's process story. <laughs> Great. Um, a few years ago, I sailed across the Atlantic ocean. And whenever anyone asks me about the crossing, I have to preface the response with an understanding that no matter what I say going forward, everything took place while moving, while eating, sleeping, doing the dishes, throwing up. The 60-foot boat is constantly rocking. This is juxtaposed with a seemingly stagnant environment. When you come out onto deck, you know, 360 degrees around, it looks just about the same every day. What you can't see in this picture is Gomorota, the ship that we were sailing with. Whenever anyone would come out onto deck, they would ask who was ever at the helm, where's Goma? And uh, since we're in the trough of a wave right now in this picture, the person at the helm would point in a general direction. We'd rise to the top of the wave, see the mast bobbing over the horizon, and then that crew member could go about his or her day with a bit of sanity, no matter how sort of uh, illogical it was, of a perspective of where we were and sort of where we were going. For Deep North, uh, I, I don't expect to have 100,000 downloads a day. I don't expect to be in the top of the iTunes chart, even though I made the top 200 for a day. <laughs> but I really take solace in these small uh, moments of Goma's mass popping over the horizon and mind it reminded me that I'm at least going somewhere. When we made it to Barbados, we found out that the navigation system was on the fritz and we had taken a really indirect 26-day trip ac across the Atlantic. Nonetheless, we made it and retained a bit of sanity along the way. I think perspective is just, it's so important because you get into this thinking, how am I going to jump in the charts? How am I going to have a hit? And um, speaking of that, let's just, I'm going to just give a little bit of context of numbers to consider the environment that we're working in. Um, you know, 550,000 podcasts out there, right? Um, about less than 2% of them make up the majority. And uh, these are just kind of general numbers that are out there. I feel like they shift a lot. And you know, the numbers in podcasting is lots of smoke, smoke and mirrors. You can slice and dice in lots of ways to help have numbers help you out or, or, or hurt you even. So, but these are kind of just general truisms. Um, Libsyn, the largest podcasting uh, hosting company, reports that like 1% of podcasts on their platforms have more than 50K downloads. So um, you know, just a little perspective depending on the size of your show and where you're trying to go with it. And then in terms of revenue, because, you know, a lot of you might in the room be saying, like, how can I get sponsors on my show? Um, just to give you a sense for what those numbers could pan out to be. Now, this could be a whole session unto itself that I would not be the correct person to run. Um, but um, you generally, in the industry, it's thought you need about 50K consistent downloads uh, in a month to get sponsors interested in your show. 
Um, and this is just a sample formula. So if you know or don't know, um, ads are sold at the unit of sale is the CPM, cost per thousand downloads. And so an average CPM might be 20. They range. They go way up to 60 to 65 for some premium. They're much lower for bigger network buys. Um, but if you put out 20 episodes a year, which is a lot of production for some and not in half production for other shows that are weekly, and you have about 10,000 downloads, you'll see like your max profit on that show with two ad spots would be 8,000. Now the likely sell-through rate, um, I was told 25%. I, I gave a range to be a little bit more uh, hopeful and, and optimistic to 50%, but you're still, you know, that's, that's going to get you not, not a ton of money, right? So um, I think that... 50,000K to get a sponsor, I'd like to challenge that idea because I think there are other ways to look locally for sponsors and, you know, approach. I like to talk about, I use this example all the time, but the Neighbors podcast uh, comes out of Nashville and um, I heard a, like a burrito joint ad on that podcast once and I was like, what? I'm never going to go there. But I am here telling you about it today because I remembered and thought it was like such a genuine uh, way to think about uh, Jacob producing the show and approaching local businesses and, and was successful. I don't know how much money he got for that. Maybe he got a lifetime supply of burritos. But anyway, my appearance as a listener was like, oh, this this is, you know, there's something here. The community is supporting the show about the community. So there was like a nice full circle thing there for me. Um, again, I don't, I don't find <laughs> this part as interesting in this conversation, which to me is more about like, how do you keep a creative joy and persist in making a show that may not hit the numbers that you're looking for? And, you know, what are the other rewards that you can have? And then if you're facing challenges beside these, you know, how are you working creatively to get to those? So one thing almost everyone that applied to be on this panel talked about was like the time it takes to promote yourself and whether they felt comfortable promoting themselves or not, like the big challenge of existing across all of the social medias and trying to keep up with their listeners because, as we know, podcasting feels very close and intimate, and uh, it seems like if you tweet at your favorite podcast host, they should, or they will, or they probably will get back to you in some way, shape, or form. I can say from Radiotopia's perspective, um, and I'm going to embarrass, so I see Maggie Taylor in the back of our room, our marketing director. We put so much time and effort and thought into um, engaging on the social platforms and being responsive to our listeners. Every single tweet gets a thank you or a you know, some, some recognition, whether it's most of, lots of them are positive. We love that. We even try to respond to any, anything else, but creating that sense of community between your listeners, they start talking to each other between your, the producer and, and the people hearing the show. It's just, it helps. Cause as you said, Nadia, the word of mouth is huge. And this is also, um, so invaluable. If you make great content, which is actually my best advice to you is to make great content, then people love it and they will talk about it and they will tell other people to listen. So, you know, the, the, the self-promotion is just part of it. Um, regardless of what your ambition is, you want people to hear your show. You're working so hard on it. Like you have to be able to um, project it beyond just the feeds that people are going to have. And how are you going to draw people in that don't listen to podcasts even, but might love the the, the content that you're using, people on the corner or in, in your area that may never have heard a podcast, but now want to tune into these topics you're talking about. So how do you find them? So um, a popular way to promote your show is to trade mentions on other shows. I wonder if you have all ever done that or thought about, you know, cross-promoting? I mean, grab their phones. I mean, I like the number <laughs> of people uh, who don't know that they have a purple button on their iPhone that is a podcast, and they say, oh, yeah, no, I'll do it later. No, I, we need to do this right now. So that's, I, I mean, I think on some level, kind of person by person, um, 
I mean, there's so much social media. I don't know. It just it feels overwhelming. I think you're right. Like if you make good stuff, hopefully people talk about it. But I you don't have know. to talk about it. You, you actually have to, have to really talk about it yourself. And then, yeah. I mean, it, I feel like to get the reward back of knowing people are hearing the hard work. You know, that's where, you know, that's where the, some of the gratification comes in that may help you through those all nighters or help you through the long years working on each season. I mean, I feel like it's like a moving goalpost. Like if I had. 10,000 listeners, I'd want <laughs> no 20. Way. If I had 20,000, I'd want 50. Yeah. Oh, it's so never enough. It's never yeah. enough. So I, no. I, you know, you want to feel at the end of the day that you've kind of left everything on the field, that you've done yeah. everything you can to, but at some point it's like, you know what, like I, that's, this is going to sound like exactly the wrong way of thinking about this, but like promoting it is not my job. You know, my job is to make it. And that's how I see it. You know, like I don't want to spend I'd rather be making it than yeah. promoting it, and yeah. it, you know. I would say if you are independent, your promoting is sorry, I know. part of the job. I know. Um, but there's ways to, you know, another thing we try to really encourage people to do is partner up, find your community, find people who love what you're doing, whether it's your family and can help, whether it's, uh, you know, your advisory board. I love that you've gathered, formalized a system to get some feedback. It's so important to have that. It's really important. Like, it's this proactivity that you have to be, you have, to, you have to be ambitious. You have to do it for yourself. It's not going to come. It takes a lot of time. Um, back to the cross-promo. Have, have any of you ever cross-promoted? We're going to be trying that in the next few months. There's a few Middle Eastern um, podcasts that are coming out of the Middle East um, that have asked if we want to swap uh, yeah. swap episodes. So they'll put something of ours on their feed, and I'll put something of theirs on our feed. Um, and we're going to see how that works out for us. I'm hopeful that it will do something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer for the content of my show to try to get it on a Minnesota public radio, but unfortunately, they haven't responded to any emails. Anyone um, here in the room? <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. Okay. Um, but one, one thing, three things I've had success with in sharing it with people is, one, I was fortunate enough to get a really nice article in the Minneapolis paper, the Star Tribune, and talk about bang for a buck. I mean, listenership just rose exponentially after I had ridden off print as dead. <laughs> did they just come to you, or did you promote it in a way that they found your promotion and Yeah, I blasted it out, mm -hmm. um, as many people yeah. as I knew. A another thing is um, I developed relationships with two digital media agencies in the, in the cities. One is TC Agenda, one is Streets.mn, which have sort of a similar mission to me. They're online news sources. And I asked uh, if they'd be interested in sharing uh, my content, and they said yes. So they became distribution partners. So everything I made was hosted on both of those sites. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. yeah, worked out nice. I think being creative about who might partner with you is just so important to think about, because it feels like you're doing it on your own, and then it's just like you tweeting about your show. But I mean, there are so many interested organizations out there that would love to be associated with a podcast or maybe make a podcast one day. But I just feel like hitting the pavement and kind of understanding the, the universe you're making your show in and who it's for, it can be really successful at finding um, all kinds of partners, whether it's... Uh, I don't know, another location-based show or, you know. I, I, had, I got a call from Gimlet uh, Science Versus. They were doing a show on gentrification, and I think they may have found my numbers because uh, yeah. we haven't talked uh, in, the, yeah. in the last week. But that was sort of, you know, like they came to me, and I was like, great. That's, yeah. I mean, that, that's the dream. But out of that, outside of that, to me, uh, NPR One has been great. And uh, I had a piece... Uh, a blurb in the times. So I think media, like, you know, traditional public relations actually, 
I think can drive a lot of traffic. Um, and you know, they want to. Uh, podcasting is sort of new and exciting for a lot of sort of mainstream um, venues. So it is. It's shiny. It's new. It, it feels they want to be. There want. There's a desire to be associated with this exciting new technology. So I think you know it's your job to identify who the potential partners are and go after them. Just like it's your job to like let people know you've dropped an episode. I mean, like all of these, like in San Francisco, there's like Hoodline. There's all of these local neighborhood um, blogs. Uh, so that's been really one yeah. of the ways that I've gotten it out is um, people who are similarly interested in urban, you yeah. know, what's going on in the city, how it's changing, letting them know about it, but but in an, in a PR-y kind of way as opposed to like a, a tweet, yeah. you know, kind of like a traditional press release. <laughs> yeah, it takes it takes organization, actually. It takes knowing what your shows are going to be about and pre-promoting them. <coughs> we struggle a lot with that because, um, as probably some of you in the room, like you're probably producing episode to episode. Well, it's very hard for us to get in front of, you know, things coming up for a show if we don't actually know that or we don't have any audio we can share. So I think there's a general um, change in produ production culture where people are working ahead a bit, so you're not episode to episode. That just makes it very hard to help yourself get people interested in what's coming. Yeah. Because you know it's a little too late after you hit it. You're already working on your next episode. That's the hardest time to start promoting the episode you just dropped. Got to do it then too, though. No, no rest for the weary. I do think um, this. We have anecdotal evidence. You can never really <coughs> isolate what makes numbers jump, but um, through Radiotopia and especially through Ear Hustle, which I monitor kind of obsessively, like where people have heard about the show. So many people say either literally word of mouth or they heard about it on another show, whether it was cross promote or featured. So, you know, finding other places to feature your work, not just a promo, but like trade an episode even is another way to get more active listeners aware of your show. But it is like uh, a drumbeat. You know, so then one of your jobs, in my opinion, is to be as creative and have as much fun as you can with that drumbeat. Um, our show Criminal just dropped their 100th episode, and we had a talk about, like, well, what can we do that was different than, like, the 50th episode dropping, like, again, reaching out to the listeners to get excited about this. And they came up with this great idea of having people impersonate Phoebe Judge. She's got a very distinct voice, and they had a, they set up a hotline, which is a very easy, cheap thing to do. And, you know, they got time. So people not just, like, noted they had 100 episodes, but got involved themselves and had were able to kind of, you know, live out their fantasy of sharing their Phoebe Judge impression with Phoebe. So, And they put together a little, like, just four-minute bonus episode to drop today alongside the 100th episode. And it's, it's charming. And it made me realize, like, this is also how you understand how invested your listeners are in your show, too. So it's, it, you know, it's good for the show. It's good for you. One thing I forgot to say in my pitch this morning was, like, how do you do this and maintain some sense of, as I said, creative joy, like why you're doing it. So, you know, the more, I think the more creative, the more creativity you can bring to everything alongside the content, the better. Um, and, you know, I just think with the money piece, because you might be thinking, well, that's all fine and well, but how do I make a living doing this? It just takes a lot of time. You ask any professional doing anything, like they've been training for a long time, patience, persistence, um, a regular schedule, a regular uh, offering that people can get to know. It, it's a process. It does just never happens quickly, um, except for a few unicorns out there that are, you know, not as useful in understanding how to make a hit podcast. If, if there are a few things that catch and there are flukes and there, and people that have a lot of resources behind them to, to make things overnight skyrocket. So again, I keep in mind what you're working with and where you're at and how do you scale what you want out of your show to how it's performing and what is your idea of success? Kind of keep your eyes on that prize and try to do your best work that you can do for your show.
Okay, I promised a little bit of help for these guys, so we're gonna run through and express a question or a challenge that you have, and I'd love to hear if any of you have opinions or answers for them. So let's start with Steve. You've been in hot seat starting. Great. Um, where to start? I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have been as enthusiastic about this panel if I didn't know that this section was coming, that <laughs> I could ask you guys things because I feel about the least qualified person to have a microphone in this room. Uh, what I'm dealing with is the, <coughs> the battle between investing this time into creating long-form content uh, while not being, uh, by being compensated monetarily comes from teaching gigs, from live recording gigs, from hosting gigs, from all this stuff that comes out of, hey, you do a podcast, that's great, tell my story. Um, how do I justify continue investing all this time into 80 hours, into like produced shows, uh, when I could just maybe do a little bit less produced, more frequent shows uh, that have the potential to get a little bit more of a following, sort of develop an influencer-like uh, persona that generates consulting work. Is that selling out? And how does be having a geographically limited resource uh, audience uh, affect that decision? So that's about 10 questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which one, which one do you most want to know? Or actually, your hand shot up. Maybe you can answer all 10. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um, so this is something, the, the question of um, trying to do some less labor-intensive episodes, essentially, um, to make things easier. So we just tried doing that. Um, I hosted a show called Out There, and we recently added an advice segment to it. So once a month, we were doing an episode that was like, this, this is it. People were writing questions, whatever. And, um, and, and it was interview style. We hired advice columnists, and so it required so much less editing, and so much less mm. scripting, and so much less sound design than our normal narrative um, segments. And we thought, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. Like, we can produce more things. We'll sell more ads. We'll make more money. We'll get more listeners, all the things. And um, so we did this, we tried this for six months or so, and then we did a listener survey to see what people thought of it, to decide whether we were going with it. And our listeners slammed it. <laughs> they basically said, this is not what we come to you for, we come to you for these narrative stories, you do them really well, and we don't want to listen to this crap. Um. <laughs> I mean, not, it, that's oversimplifying, but, it, but, but kind of. And it was really interesting to me, so we decided to kill the advice. Second. But uh, but but that was interesting in that like I think that a lot of us who come from uh, more of a, a, a narrative audio background tend to think well look at all these other podcasts that are like total crap and they don't put any work into it and people like it's fine and it turns out that like listeners actually do appreciate the content so. I love that. Thank you for saying the C word. I wasn't going to. I will just say, um, you, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And something that Roman re recently shared for another session that I was doing about like advice for first timers is, you can develop a style that's all your own that listeners love you for, and then you develop like a um, style B that every six months you drop one in, even if you buy yourself a few weeks in between episodes. So you know, and you can even talk to your listeners. They love you. You can explain when you need to. Sometimes you hear that uh, we had a podcaster who was in the hospital for three weeks, and she just like she's like, my voice sounds cr like crap, and that this is why. And they loved that she shared that and wasn't trying to just muscle on through without you know acknowledging that. So maybe there's a happy medium. Like every six, like twice a year, you do the interview show. 
Um, and then you can also stay true to your listeners. And probably, I'm guessing you you prefer the narrative stuff, maybe making it too, but I won't assume. Okay. Okay, Nadia, what question do you have for the, the room? So I kind of uh, posed it earlier, but just trying to um, get to an audience that's not necessarily invested in the Palestinian narrative necessarily. They're not Palestinian. They're not Palestinian American. They have no real desire to <laughs> maybe travel there or anything like that. But how do I reach that audience? And the other part of this that I think is really interesting, I don't know if it's a unique problem for my podcast, but um, a lot of older uh, Arabs don't know how to listen to a podcast. They don't even know what a podcast is. So what we've heard is that one download may actually correspond to a number of different listens because people are listening together as a family or people are replaying it for their parents. I know my mom does this for my father all the time. Like, this is just how it's heard. So how do you do education for uh, people to actually learn um, how to listen? And is that a part of our job or not? <laughs> yeah. uh, my name is Jane, and I did just did two podcasts recently with people who were doing something similar, which is looking for cultural identity. So I was with I interviewed someone who manages their justice program in um, Wisconsin for the LGBTQ community. And then I interviewed um, a Latino man who was who just started writing um, stories of Latinx uh, who are doing things in their community. So what I was thinking is actually connecting with other people of other cultures looking for cultural identity because mm. you're you know you're doing the same thing and you might find some cross-sharing that way. And I think like for me I I'm interested in hearing your show because I'm interested in exactly what you're doing. So even though I don't, I'm not Palestinian, I want to hear your show. Yeah. So that might be one way. And as far as the, uh, the older generation, I think we need to start bringing them into the actual nursing homes and into the, you know, the, the housing and like make an effort going yourself to uh, elderly um, housing and share your stories because I'm sure they would get up from hearing the stories of any of the things that we're doing about that. <laughs> you can also put a tab on your website that says this is how you listen to the podcast subscribe here I mean like actual just directions that people can find that means they have to find your, pod, right, your, your website so I mean yeah so you can yeah but, but, the, but it's something everyone should do I think is like have a how to on your site if you can um, one more response for Nadia and then we'll move on in terms of marketing there is a new movement called fellowship training. And um, it's really in my community right now. But they're making a point of saying um, to be an ally, it's not just an ally based on race or an ally based on religion. So what they're trying to do in our community with allyship training is making sure that there are other cultures that are being represented mm -hmm. as well. And I know that there are organizations that are uh, doing this, so ask the Google allyship. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Great, very concrete. Thanks. All right, uh, David, what is a challenge you would like addressed by the room? So you know, I make it takes me about a year, year and a half to make a season. It's like you know, eight to ten episodes, and then it's done. And then there's this yawning gap in between. Is that okay? how do I fill that gap? Like, how do I not have to sort of essentially start from scratch every time? So is it more episodes? Is it, or is that okay? I mean, are people comfortable with these sort of seasons with a year in between, like, you know, The Sopranos or whatever? Great question. I just wanted to know if the whole season is in time or if they're dropping them 
No, I mean, I drop them, but it's like, it's when you only have six to eight or whatever, it's, you know, over the course of two or three months. This last time I tried to sort of stretch it out as long as possible. There were the holidays. I put in like old, you know, just anything to kind of, but at the end of the day, it's still, there's still going to be like eight to 10 months where nothing, you know, where there's nothing new. I think that uh, during the seasons in between, you could potentially release like bonuses of stuff you left on the cutting room floor. Maybe behind the stuff, or maybe it's, you know, you know, as it relates to Google and Silicon Valley, maybe like a, something big happened in the city or big tech news where you just hop into the feed for five minutes and say, hey, uh. I'm working on some stuff for you. You know, what we talked about last season, though, this issue just came up. You know, it'll be in the next season. I just want to say hello. Thanks for sticking with me. Um, we'll see you soon. You don't have to put a whole produced narrative, you know, episode out in between seasons. You can just stay in touch with the audience, say that I'm working on things, and still update them on, you know, your project and the broader story that you're working on. Because the number of people that say, are you still making the intersection? I'm like... Give me a break, you know, but I, I think that's part yeah, of it is, yeah. you know, I, those, those are great. Thank you. Um, I think it's true. Uh, you have control of your feet. You can do whatever you want in there. You can, you know, so you, yeah, you can just remind people you're there and you're coming back and previews are very popular now. There's like a whole culture of like coming in two weeks and like that was that, you know, so you can just tap into that. Um, Pledge week. <laughs> I want to leave you with the <coughs> hot tips that we have put together for you. Let's start with David. Uh, yeah, I mean, this changed the trajectory for me. It wasn't, so I had this idea, I wasn't exactly sure, and then I saw that there were a bunch of grants that were coming up at the same time, and I had avoided it. I was like, you know what, I, I do sort of copywriting in my other life. It's like, you know, I'll get another copywriting gig to pay for this, whatever. Well, actually going through the grant process was super helpful in fine-tuning the idea, in um, looking at it from different angles. So one was a humanities grant, and uh, from California, and one was about collaboration, and then another one was uh, local. And so it kind of forced me to put my concept through a lot of different lenses um, and get feedback from you know people that are have seen a million of these sorts of uh, proposals. So do it early on, uh, and if you get them, great. If you don't, that's okay. I mean, that part of the process of just doing it is super, super, super helpful. Nadia? This is actually a piece of advice I was given um, when I first started, um, and that's actually why I continue to release an episode every single month when I can. Um, someone told me, you have to be consistent, and your audience will continue expecting you to release episodes. My dad calls me the first day of every month and asks me when the episode is coming out that month. Um, but he keeps me accountable, and I think that people are waiting for it, even if you don't think they're waiting for it. Um, even if it's just 500 people, they're waiting for content. And I think it's important to be consistent for that, with that content. And have you ever dropped a like, we're taking this month off, but we'll be back message? Or yeah. would you consider doing that? Yeah, there were point? a few trying times with the news and all this that I just, I just didn't have the bandwidth to create. Um, and I did a MailChimp uh, campaign where I put together this like graphic about like, we're just having a hard time you know, processing news, we really want to produce something for you, but please give us some leeway and we can't do it right now. Please stick with us. People responded really well to that. It was like a personal letter that was signed by me and everything. And I think people want the personal connection. Um, and 
I'm very honest. I'm like an open book, so um, I usually am very honest with people when I can't get it to them. Um, and I think people like that openness and that honestness. Yeah. Honesty. Uh. <laughs> yeah, ma maintain perspective. So I, I think giving advice to this crowd is sort of a ridiculous concept, so <laughs> I'll just sort of speak from experience and continue beating the sailing analogy into the earth. Um, <laughs> So when when reaching the top of one of these waves, it was a clarifying opportunity to see where we had been and where we are going. But a trough was sure to follow after that, and another crest after that, and a trough after that. For deep north, these cresting moments have been um, getting media hits. They've been appreciative emails from listeners. Uh, they've been attending Third Coasts. Uh, and, you know, the subtle, subtle acknowledgments is, hmm, I couldn't have ridden this last year. So the, the navigation system may be broken, but I'm going somewhere. Um, so, so maintaining perspective uh, comes back to this idea that there's not a green flashing arrow or a bright star saying, good job, or patting you on the back. It's much more subtle, sometimes hardly noticeable and it can disappear. And so for those prolonged periods in the trough, keep looking in that direction, even when all you see is a wall of water. That's nice, thank you. Um, I would just add, I think something you reminded me that like having a newsletter, a way to also talk to your listeners that way, David sends a great newsletter. I mean, it prompted a response from me the last one you sent um, after we had started talking about this. and I. I, I threatened to out him on it because it, it was just another way of thinking and it, it had new content and was well put together. And it was in your voice. It wasn't just like, here's an update, but I really felt like it was an extension of the podcast. So again, it takes time, it takes a little bit of money to, to do this, but these connections you make, um, I think so much, Third Coast has always been about community and supporting the community and all of us coming together to support each other. And I think it's just the same with podcasting you know, find other producers struggling, uh, join the groups in your cities that get together and listen to each other's work and help each other, you know, find that community with your listeners and with the makers. And and my, my last tip, I always implore people to listen more and understand what, understand what their shows are and can be and what they like and what they don't like through really understanding what's out there. And, um, think about articulation of what works for you and what doesn't beyond the good and bad. And I, I, I promise you that the more you listen, the, the more you have to bring to your own shows and then the better shows you make and then the more you delight your listeners and then you might have some sponsors and then all of a sudden this might be the show that you know you, you really dreamed from day one of making. So I hope the conversation won't stop uh, now just because the session is ending. And thank you all for coming and good luck with your shows and tell us all about them and enjoy your Third Coast experience.